Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Ravella, and I'm the co-host of this show. And I'm Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, you know, over the uh, past couple of years, we've had the privilege of speaking with uh, one of the people I admire most around the American Shoreline, David Abel, who is a reporter with the Boston Globe. Uh, decorated uh, reporter with Indeed. the Boston Globe, I'll say. Pulitzer Prize winner for his uh, team coverage with uh, the paper on the Boston Marathon bombing uh, in 2014. And David is an, uh, also a documentary filmmaker and has on his resume some incredibly important uh, documentary films regarding coastal issues in America. Uh, Gladesman is one of the the films about uh, Florida Everglades, Sacred Cod, a great film, and uh, Lobster Wars, Tyler, as you remember, the first uh, film that we uh, documented with him in a, in, in, in a podcast uh, about the right whale and lobsters in the Northeast, and uh, his latest film, Entangled, so I'm really looking forward to this show. You know, Peter, we rely so heavily on journalists to educate us on what's going on out there on the American shoreline. There's a lot going on and it takes- It's complicated. It takes people keeping an eye on things, following things, the gumshoe mentality. And uh, David is going to shed light on a a new light. This'll be the, I believe his third time on the show. We've been track, this is just gonna be fun, learning about what's going on up there in Maine, up in Massachusetts in the Northeast with the this really critically endangered uh, whale. So I look forward to yet another conversation with our good friend David Abel. But first, Peter, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, David, welcome back to the American Shoreline Podcast, and thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to update our listeners uh, on the coastal developments in the uh, northeast part of the country. I really appreciate you uh, uh, being on the show today. It's my pleasure, and it's great to be uh, back talking to you guys. Look, if, if I can just say, you know, it's been about a year since you've been on, you know, maybe the best opening is what's what what developments have occurred, major developments have occurred in the in the discussion of the right whale over the past year. So um, uh, so there's been a lot. So uh, as you mentioned, um, uh, last spring, we completed our latest film about uh how uh, in large um, and broad strokes, how climate change is accelerating a collision between one of the world's most endangered species, which is the North Atlantic right whale, uh, and the nation's most valuable single fishery, which is the lobster industry, and the um, agency that has the tricky mission of trying to do both uh, um, protecting endangered species and uh, promoting sustainable fisheries. And so uh, in, um, in the time since we completed the film, which chronicles the challenges of the, uh, of the National Marine Fisheries Service in trying to thread the needle between those very conflicting interests, we've seen a lot of developments and there, and it's, it's one of these stories that was really hard to end. We actually uh, recently updated the film to account for a series of developments. Uh, but um, uh, in short, uh, there was this process that we chronicle in the film that uh, sought after a spate of um, 
uh, of deaths of right whales, we've seen the population decline by 25% just in the past decade, um, uh, declining from as much as about 480 uh, uh, right whales to now an estimated, uh, the most recent estimate was that there are now roughly 356 right whales. And, um, and that sharp decline spurred the federal government to try to bring together the um, uh, different stakeholders uh, um, that included lobstermen and other fishing interests, uh, scientists, conservation groups, state and federal regulators uh, in this body called the Atlantic Large Whale Take Reduction Team. And they, um, uh, nearly two years ago now, were, were given this um, this mission of trying to find a way to reduce mortalities and serious injuries of right whales by as much as, uh, by at least six, 60% um, um, to try to reduce the, the, um, uh, the to, to try to turn back what was this very bad trend toward uh, greater uh, mortality and and reduce births. And, um, and they finally came up with a plan, which again is in our film, uh, that did, uh, that they said would accomplish that. And uh, almost uh, everyone on this body, I think 59 of 60 people voted to um, support these changes, which were considered historic and the first real significant actions to help uh, uh, protect right whales. And, um, and then, of course, which we also chronicle in the film, there was a backlash, uh, and the lobstermen, uh, particularly in Maine, uh, who supported the agreement, pulled out, and there were all kinds of protests, and the gov everyone from the governor to the senators and the entire congressional delegation in Maine uh, began lobbying the Trump administration to... Uh, to try to quash these proposed rules. And that culminated with uh, former, now former President Trump visiting Maine last summer and essentially telling, uh, telling the fishermen that he had their back. Mm -hmm. and, um, and by having their back, the proposed regulations ended up in this kind of uh, regulatory black hole for much of the past year. And so uh, while everybody in the scientific community and conservation community was uh, saying that there was an urgent crisis that had to be dealt with uh, because of increasing numbers of entanglements in fishing gear, as well as the uh, increasing threat of um, uh, to right whales uh, from from vessel strikes, that something had to be done and had to be done quickly to turn uh, to turn the tide, and nothing was being done. And there were these regulations that had been delayed and delayed, and they were only finally released um, 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 just uh, on the very last day of 2020. I think it was New Year's Eve that they were released when I believe that they had to be released in part because of a court order. And uh, that's another uh, part of this conversation. But there have been two federal judges who have ruled against the National Marine Fisheries Service, uh, saying that the um, agency had been violating the Endangered Species Act by failing to do more to protect right whales. and. Uh, essentially uh, prodded the agency and the government to release these rules. And now, finally, uh, those rules have seen the light of day. And, and this month, the, there will be a public comment period uh, that uh, will um, uh, we'll look at you know, what uh, the value of these, of these proposed rules, which... Uh, for the most part, adopts a lot of the proposals uh, 
that were that came out of that group, the Atlantic Large Whale Take Production Team, uh, um, nearly two years ago. And if uh, all goes well, uh, by the end of May, um, or by uh, this earlier this spring, uh, we should see some regulations on the water to actually protect right whales. And I could talk uh, more and more about this, but I don't want to bore your audience. So, <laughs> well, uh, I, I certainly don't think it would bore the audience. I think this, David, this issue of the North Atlantic right whale and uh, its compatibility as a species with uh, our nearshore uh, activities as human beings, both in the lobster fishery and in shipping, uh, is really just an acute example of the conflict of interests that occur on the American shoreline. You know, as you've pointed out, the the population, these are, we're down to around, as you said, I think 380 or so uh, individual right whales in existence on the planet Earth. This is a highly critical point in this species' existence. And, uh, the threat of uh, entanglement in vertical lines in the lobster fishery is obviously a well-known and documented threat to these whales, as is ship strikes, as, as you've said. And I'm wondering, David, uh, what, what you're seeing now in terms of the momentum to effectively address the risk to the whale uh, in the new Biden administration. Can, can you talk a little bit about where you expect this to go? Can you tell uh, are we in a position now where we could expect meaningful action to protect this species? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a question I've been asking recently uh, to gather uh, or to gauge whether the proposed rules uh, uh, might, be, might be amended in some way by the new administration. Um, and that, uh, to me at this point, remains unclear uh, there are so many things uh, that this new administration uh, regards as urgent and must, you know, um, right. uh, command their attention. Um, the um, the right whale, I'm not sure if it is at the top of their agenda. Um, I should say that it seems uh, that the proposed regulations. Um, by the National Marine Fisheries Service uh, that they claim will reduce the uh, mortality and serious injury of right whales uh, remains on course uh, to become policy. And that would involve a suite of, uh, of, of significant changes. Each state in the region has proposed its own uh, steps that uh, aims to reduce the number of so-called vertical buoy lines, um, the ropes that stretch from buoys at the surface to fixed uh, traps, either lobster traps or or crab pots at the at the bottom, and these are the 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 dangerous um, lines or or in essence the minefield that marine mammals have to swim through. And over the course of a year, there are millions of these lines in just the Gulf of Maine. Um, and that's why we've seen so many entanglements uh, in not just North Atlantic right whales, but humpback whales and leatherback turtles and other, uh, and other um, species. So uh, this is, uh, this is a, a, a serious problem, uh, but the proposed solutions um, also include closures. And just here in Massachusetts, um, the state's Department of Marine Fisheries just announced that it passed these rules that will ban, uh, extend closures of fishing throughout most state waters uh, during the period of time that whales are generally here, which uh, is uh, from generally um, now uh, through, uh, through May. And so those, um, regulations are going to have a serious impact on the fishing community here. And, you know, many have described the potential loss of being able to fish for months at a time, uh, as devastating and, and, um, 
there are a lot of concerns about how this uh, these regulations could affect uh, folks. There are also now studies going on about and among the uh, regulations in by the federal government uh, that would allow um, um, potentially um, there to be a new kind of lobster fishing called ropeless fishing, which yeah. wouldn't use these dangerous vertical buoy lines, but would use um, these um, these this new technology that uh, uses a variety of different devices, such as lift bags, to bring um, to bring the traps from the surface, uh, from the bottom to the surface, right. and. Uh, and while there are lots of challenges, particularly the costs with that technology, there is now uh, regula regulatory uh, changes in the works that might uh, authorize that kind of fishing to be possible. Uh, at this point, it's uh, technically still illegal to, to fish that way, okay. uh, as lobstermen are, are uh, only licensed to fish uh, with specific types of gear. Well, David, one of the things that's uh, always fascinated me about uh, about this issue of the right whale and the lobster fishery, you mentioned that the the lobster fishery in the Northeast, primarily in Maine, is the wealthiest, richest fishery in the world, I think, with revenue values exceeding a billion dollars per year. And Yet the lobstermen's associations and the organizations that support uh, the fishermen, and uh, of course we love the fishermen, uh, have complained that the regulatory structure they're operating within is just onerous and a threat to their existence. And here's my question. If you are able to, to make a billion dollars a year on a fishery and have the most successful fishery, how restrictive are these regulations in the past that they are still complaining about? And is it, in your opinion, possible that this fishery can continue as a lucrative practice, even in light of the proposed regs? What's your sense? Are, is the regulatory structure truly an existential threat to the lobster industry, fishing industry in the United States? Well, uh, it's a it's a loaded question you're asking, and it's <laughs> uh, and it's also a complicated question. Um, let me just refine some of the numbers you quoted. Right. So, the billion dollars is actually that's considered the economic value of the fishery. Okay. Uh, so that that extends to, uh, you know, bait, red lobster, uh, the retail producers, value. and and rope manufacturers, and and mechanics who fix lobster boats, the actual value of the catch um, is closer to a half a billion dollars. Um, I think the record was set in 2016 when the state caught um, the state, the value of the catch was something like $538 million. Right. Um, which, not not you know, chump change, really. Not chump change. Yeah, yeah. And and also the value of the, the catches has surged um, you know, over the past decade, uh, um, incredibly, and climate change has arguably helped uh, the lobster um, fishery in some cases, uh, particularly off of down east Maine, um, uh, where the the cold waters had uh, reached in recent years a kind of sweet spot and caused a kind of explosion of the lobster population. Um, that was actually the subject of my last film, Lobster War, which looked at the impact of um, the, uh, the warming waters on this um, uh, um, centuries-old conflict between the United States and Canada over this small island that both countries claimed since the end of the Revolutionary War. And in short, nobody cared about this island until uh, the last decade or so when the warming waters uh, made the, uh, the so-called gray zone around that island that both countries claimed suddenly flush with lobster and, uh, and their value had increased. And so the Canadians who long ceded those waters to the Americans uh, started um, uh, claiming the waters and fishing the waters, causing all kinds of conflict. 
But uh, in short, to go back to your question, um, there are there are significant cons- reasonable concerns, I should say, on the part of the lobster industry uh, about the potential impact of regulations to protect right whales on their future and their livelihood. Specifically, um, there have been some efforts and um, and. Uh, some recently successful efforts uh, that that have sought to actually completely shut down much of the lobster industry. Mm. And, uh, and I'm thinking of one lawsuit, and, and I'll talk about that in uh, a little bit more depth in a minute, but um, um, the notion, the, the easiest way to reduce the dangers to right whales is to eliminate uh, in, uh, eliminate vertical buoy lines or in, eliminate lobster gear um, from their migratory routes. And so the first thing that a lot of lobstermen and folks in the lobster industry were nervous about was that the federal government might just decide to completely shut down the lobster industry uh, to protect the whales. And they pushed back very heavily against that. Um, um, but that would be, you know, a potentially existential threat. Um, and the science actually, uh, is on, uh, is not really, um, helping the, the arguments or the case being made by the lobster industry in that the federal government has said, um, repeatedly that even one unnatural death of a right whale um, in a year is likely to um, um, cause the, um, uh, lo- the, 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 the population of right whales to go extinct. And, wow. um, and the, 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 the language is a little complicated when you're talking about the Marine Mammal Protection Act and the Endangered Species Act, but essentially, um, the uh, the f- the federal rules suggest that the um, lobster industry is violating the Endangered Species Act um, or potentially um, threatening the uh, vi- viability of this species by continuing to operate uh, if there's more than one unnatural death a year of a right whale. And in just the last few years, we've seen some uh, uh, 40 right whales die on natural deaths. So we're not talking about, um, uh, you know, a hypothetical problem here. Hmm. Um, and I should say, as I was noting, you know, closing off uh, waters, which is actually going to start happening here in Massachusetts, um, in areas where there would be fishing throughout the winter months and the spring months, uh, is, is a reasonable concern. And a lot of people, uh, worry that they're going to lose catch. And then when all of the fishing starts again, um, in June, the price might, uh, might plummet because there's going to be a surge in, um, a surge in the, in, in supply. So if a lot of fishing isn't happening, uh, then all these fishermen, you know, race to catch the more lobster and that could uh, uh, increase the supply and decrease the, the cost. So th- there are legitimate concerns here. Um, but I should say that the proposed regulations so far uh, that have been issued seem to uh, try to keep the lobster industry in mind and uh and take uh steps to allow the fishery to continue um and so there are reasonable arguments that by uh having everyone not fishing or fishing less you somehow maintain the sustainability of the fishery and also um uh, maintain the value of the catch uh, if everyone is acting sort of in concert um, and um, and ultimately you can maintain a robust 
uh, economy and fishery while doing more to protect the whales. Uh, it's a very tricky balance and it's unclear, you know, whether uh, at this point, whether it cuts corners by trying to uh, cater to both the conservation community and the lobster industry and thus maybe not doing enough to protect right whales um, or um, um, doing um, not enough to make serious uh, a serious impact on the industry. Wow. So a lot going on here. Um, and I just want to I want to just take a minute, take 30 seconds. I'm going to take 30 seconds to uh, quickly for for those folks who are new to the ASPN audience, I just want to point out that we have covered this issue now for Peter two and a half years since we started. Yeah, it's been a major focus of our podcast coverage. If, if you go back into the archives, you're going to find a, a lot of coverage, including a couple of shows with David, um, and some additional shows we've we've had on ropeless fishing technology folks. Uh, we did the show with Whale Week down in. Uh, uh, South Carolina, I believe, where yeah, they Georgia and South Carolina. Where they talked about the calving and the reproductive system, yep. uh, and how that's going on down in the uh, the warmer waters uh, yeah. th- during the winter time. Actually, it's you know it's a migratory whale. It it's a nearshore migratory whale, whale that feeds up in the northeast, but migrates to the southern uh, Atlantic shoreline off of Georgia, northern Florida, South Carolina to calve. So. The life cycle of this animal, right, Tyler, is, is uh, important all along the Atlantic seaboard of the United States. It is, and and I would encourage everyone to go back and, and actually listen to those shows. They're a little older, but uh, good good content. And uh, what I remember, what sticks out in my mind, is we had Michael Acero on, who at the time was the uh, Dr. Michael Acero, who was the uh, director of the take reduction uh, team, team yeah, for the right uh, whale. For the right whale. And the number he cited, I believe, was 406 whales. And now, so we've we've lost in, it's, it hasn't been, what, a year and a half maybe since we've spoke with him, 20, 20-something whales have died? Does that sound right, David? Yeah, so um, so some of these numbers are estimates. So, uh, so in the last few years, we've seen, I think, in 2017, we saw a record uh, 17 right whales die. Uh, 12 of which died in the Gulf of St. Lawrence in Canada as a result of the plummeting uh, food supply um, in their in their traditional summer feeding grounds in um, in the Gulf of Maine, and that was attributed in part to climate change and the rapidly warming waters here. Um, um, the um, and then there were a few protections for the right whales in Canadian waters, but. Then in 2018, uh, for the first time uh, in anyone's memory, we saw zero births of right whales, um, which was uh, which was also uh, a, a horrible har- harbinger for the viability of the species. We also uh, saw, I think, three deaths uh, in 2018, uh, and then in 2019 we saw another 10 right whales. And these are all the known deaths. Uh, it's estimated that at least uh, uh, for for every whale that we find dead, uh, another whale is likely to have died, uh, but wouldn't ha- won't ever be found. So, um, um, so the formula for the estimate of the population uh, takes into account whales that likely have died that haven't been seen. Uh, this this past year. Um, in 2020, uh, we uh, thankfully only saw two right whales that died. Unfortunately, two of the, the two that died were both um, were both calves that had just been born. So one of which was killed uh, uh, only hours after being born in the calving grounds um, after being hit by a ship. Um, so that's uh, that's the rough uh, the rough news. Um, and hold on, because um, I, I have an idea, David. I'd like to play a game. We love okay. games. Okay, I'm calling it. I'm calling this. It's a little baby segment called Trend Lines. You know, it's kind of like the stock market, or uh, I don't know, thumbs up, thumbs down. Another game we've played. But um, so Trend Lines in 2020, because there are se- as we as you've pointed out, there is a lot of uh, 
moving parts here and they're all interconnected. But uh, I would like to get, and I realize I'm asking you to give a little opinion here. Some of it's backed up by the, the raw numbers, but just as a category, let's just start with the right whale. In 2020, you said we lost two calves, and is that it? Uh, th those are the known the known losses. Those are the known deaths, right. So I would have to say right whale in 2020, I'm going to say on, the, on a subtle decline. Would you agree with that, David? What do you mean by settled decline? Well, lost two. The, I mean, I, I suppose the species is at an all-time low. If it was the stock thing, it would not be looking good. But we did only lose two compared to a record 17 a few years earlier. Right. They're, they're also, I should add, though, um, also factored into the estimate, which, by the way, let me just say, in 2019, um, the population was estimated at something like 411 whales. Okay. And then uh, just this past year, um, this past fall, uh, the population estimate was revised to, I think, 356. Okay. Um, so Trending uh, down. And, and that also incorporates some another uh, category uh, uh, called uh, whales swimming while dead. And that is this... Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, this purgatory uh, that entangled whales, severely entangled whales are living in. And so there are, I think the last time I, I looked into this, there were 11 or 12 right whales that were considered, um, that were still alive or last seen dragging uh, um, uh, fishing gear and were severely emaciated with all kinds of um, lice and other kinds of signs of impending doom or mortality. I'm revising um, my trend. It sounds like it's trending down. It's not a slight down. It's it. This sounds terrible. It, it it is. But let me also just inject one one piece of recent good news. And that piece of recent good news is that. Um, despite all of the horrible things that we've been discussing for the uh, for the fate of this species, in the past um, uh, two months, the uh, we are still and we're still in the calving season. We have seen fourteen uh, calves born, which is uh, significantly better than um, than in recent years. Um, last year, there were ten calves that were born and I, and I mentioned two of them died. Um, um, the year before, I think there were seven born. Um, and then the year before there were none born. So, so far 14 being born is, is great. Uh, unmitigated good news. That said, um, uh, scientists say that for the species to be, to remain viable for, uh, for the long term, they need to be producing, uh, twice that, or roughly about 30 right whales a year. All right. Well, I, I did definitely needed to revise my trend line on the right whales, which are, uh, that is a nice little piece of news, though, to, to build a little beachhead for us to move forward on. Hopefully we can do better. Um, I'm curious to know, David, the trend lines in the lobster industry. Um, 2020, weird year. I'm sh I know we've, we followed on Coastal News Today uh, how the COVID... Uh, lockdowns uh, impacted other fisheries, but I'm not exactly sure how uh, what happened in the lobster industry uh, this past year. Was it a, another record-breaking year, or was it more quiet? We don't know yet. Um, we don't have the actual uh, uh, catch. Um, I haven't seen the actual catch uh, data for 2020, but um, it certainly started off um, um, uh, in terms of when the pandemic hit as a devastating, um, as devastating, I think uh, Noah just released a report. I can't cite off the top of my head the actual numbers, but I believe there was a decline, at least in the spring, uh, in, in catch and value by something like 20 or 30%. Um, I, 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 should, um, I should step away from those numbers. I, I can totally... Uh, not Did you, I'm just exactly curious if, 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 I mean, uh, and we look forward to the actual data that will tell, that will be the answer. 
I'm curious though. In uh, did, did you were you able to spend some time up in, on the main shoreline and get a vibe for how uh, robust the fishery felt? Let's say. I mean, were people were the fishermen going out? Were was it? Did it feel like business as usual at all? Uh, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I, uh, because of the pandemic, I have not traveled up to Maine in a year and desperately miss it uh, and uh, look very much forward to going back. But I have spoken to fishermen and, and lots of people in the industry uh, over the past year. And the, the, trend, the trend lines, I would say, were that after the, um, the crash and the dramatic um, lockdowns, um, and, and restaurant closures last spring, um, it, things started to ease up in the summer and more restaurants opened. Um, and uh, the, the lobster fishery, I should say, is heavily dependent on a robust uh, restaurant scene. Mm-hmm. And as everyone knows, the restaurant scene has cratered uh, over the past uh, over the past year unlike other seafood, uh, which has a bigger uh, supermarket um, um, uh, sales basis or foundation, the the lobster industry didn't. And so um, that was a big problem and exports were also a problem. Um, But I should say my understanding is that over the summer, uh, as more restaurants opened and the economy reopened, uh, the industry appeared to back, uh, bounce back. And, uh, and seemingly from my conversations, and I'm only saying this anecdotally, uh, seemed to finish um, on a relatively uh, uh, strong note. Interesting. Um, but I don't know what the final numbers are. And I, I imagine they would be substantially lower than uh, what they were in previous years. I know 2019 was the fourth most lucrative valued, uh, uh, fourth, fourth most lucrative year for the main lobster uh, industry. Um, and that was after banner years uh, in the previous years. All right. And, and I, I, I want to, my final trend line, and I realize this is kind of an imperfect uh, trifecta of trend lines, but I think it is helpful to get a, a just a baseline picture. If this is your first introduction to the topic, um, the the federal regulatory picture. So we discussed it earlier in the show, but from a trend line perspective, it sounds like 2020 was at best a flat line. Would you agree with that? Kind of uh, stalled, as you said, in the perpetual black hole uh, of basically not being able to do anything. <laughs> during the the waning months of the Trump administration is that would you agree with that characterization uh, I'm sorry for the for for conservation of right whales yeah um, yeah I would say that there uh, there was a kind of uh, again purgatory regulatory purgatory or or, um, or lack of any action on the part of the federal government to put, any protections on the water to protect whales over the course of the last two years. Um, uh, there's nothing uh, been done except on paper. Uh, that will hopefully change this spring. Well, there you have it. I would call that a flat line, Peter. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good pretty good wrap-up. Uh, the whales don't look, the population, let's say, is not booming in a positive direction. Uh, the value of the fishery still seems strong, but slightly declined, and the, the regulatory picture has stalled, but may be changing with the new administration. Uh, David, tell us about Entangled, what you were hoping to accomplish with that film, and how how can people uh, see this film? It's a great film, by the way, and we really uh, encourage folks to take a look at it. It's an in-depth and detailed film tell us about it sure um so uh again this is a film that grew out of uh previous films i like to uh, say this is the the capstone of a trilogy of films that look at how climate change is affecting um at the waters off of new england uh these historic waters uh that um uh brought settlers from europe to 
uh, Catch Cod, which uh, we uh, which was the subject of my first film in this series uh, called Sacred Cod, and it was about uh, arguably how warming waters um, had caused this historic fishery to collapse uh, and uh, and um, the federal government to impose a moratorium on uh, commercial fishing of cod, which remains uh, more or less in effect today. Um, and then uh, it, my next film, uh, Lobster War, uh, as I've already described, was about how uh, warming waters have affected uh, the lobster catch and, and this conflict between the United States and Canada. And while learning uh, a, a lot about those industries and those issues, I learned um, while making those films about the plight of the right whale and the impact of the lobster industry on, on, the, right, uh, on the right whale and particularly the entanglements in fishing gear. And so uh, for me, um, I think the one of the things that really motivated this, the making of this film um, was this report uh, that I wrote a story about for the paper in uh, um, at the Boston Globe, where I work as the environment reporter um, in 2019. It was a report by the United Nations that estimated uh, that we are on track by the end of this century to lose a million species. And I was just sort of dumbfounded by that uh, that statistic, it, it just is so big. Wow. It's mind blowing. And, and the loss of biodiversity is so overwhelming. It's just hard to, it's hard to even appreciate or wrap your brain around. And I thought, how do you, how do you convey that? How do you tell that story? How do you, you know, get people to understand that our planet is changing in a way that is going to wipe out, you know, a huge amount of our biodiversity. And I thought maybe you can tell this, that story through one species, uh, one particularly iconic species that people might be able to identify with. And that's how um, I thought uh, it would be worthwhile to tell the story of the right whale. Well, it's definitely, I think you picked a, a great example there. And uh, it is uh, truly a film that all of our listeners, I'm sure, would enjoy. And uh, David has the hookup. So you, there's a video-on-demand streaming method of watching this. David, would you walk our audience through how to see this film? Sure. Uh, so the film, let me just say, has been uh, premiered uh, uh, over the summer uh, at a film festival here on Cape Cod called the Woods Hole Film Festival. And we have uh, been showing it at a number of festivals from Jackson Wild to the Wild and Scenic Film Festival. It'll be at the Environmental Film Festival in the nation's capital and the American Conservation Film Festival and the EarthX Film Festival. There are all kinds of uh, film festivals where the um, film will be shown in the coming months. Well, uh, and, the and, film is and David, let me interrupt just to, to mention, because it has been screened at these festivals, it also has been widely rewarded best non-broadcast film at the Jackson Wild Festival, the best conservation film at the Mystic Film Festival, and the John DeGraff Environmental Filmmaking Award at the Wild and Scenic Film Festival. So let's say great job on the movie and well received around the country and so thrilled that it's going to you know be, I, I hope the academy gets a hold yeah, of it i mean come on this is an amazing <laughs> bit of work thank you guys uh, i appreciate that um you you guys can call the academy so <laughs> i'll put <laughs> in a word start a, we'll start a campaign <laughs> <laughs> i appreciate that um uh, yeah, and the, the film is now available, and uh, for anyone listening, uh, hopefully you'll be able to find a link to it uh, that will accompany uh, this conversation, uh, but you can find the, the film on Vimeo, and uh, we'll provide a special discount for listeners. Well, that's awesome, and again, really, I, I, there's nothing better to do during uh, the pandemic then get pop a little popcorn <laughs> throw it on your smart tv you can get a uh the the thing on my roku and you can stream this bad boy on your television uh tonight 
That's right. We all need to be sitting inside. So this is this will make you smarter and make you understand one of the complicated issues on the American shoreline. So, and there's a good right. website, entangled-film.com, uh, David, for folks who want to learn more about Entangled. Uh, is that a good place to go? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and um, you can see the trailer there and and some images from the film and a lot more about the issues and and data and um, and a bunch of stories I've written about this issue uh, for the paper. All right, we got a little time left and I want to talk, I want to expand our conversation because you are the environment reporter at the Boston Globe. And as important as this right whale issue is, uh, there's more going on. And uh, Peter, do you want to start with wind power? Or do yeah, you wanna... David, we want to, yeah, we wanted to touch base with you about wind power and uh, we've, been following this on coastal news today so we're aware of the burgeoning interest in the development of offshore wind power in the new england area uh, with the new biden administration it is expected that the uh, regulatory system is going to be more conducive to the development of uh, wind power off of the northeast uh, critical thing for climate change and uh but there are issues, it's as like everything else on the American shoreline, a conflict of interests arises in the use of nearshore waters. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about, or update our listeners a little bit about the development of wind power and how the states are reacting in the North we, Northeast, what the, what the relationship is yeah. with the what fishing are you tracking? Yeah, what are you, what are you seeing in wind power? What do you, what's going on up there? So uh, there are... Um, there are major uh, steps that are in the works uh, that are going to cause all kinds of new conflicts. So traditionally, uh, the waters off of the East Coast have been reserved uh, for commercial fishermen. It's, uh, they haven't had much competition. Uh, there has been some oil um uh, exploration, I guess, but you know that uh, while the prior administration, the Trump administration, uh, um, uh, was you know calling for oil drilling, Gung-ho. you know all uh, uh, that now is not going to happen uh, at least for the next four years. Um, but what is in the cards is uh, this massive push for offshore wind, and uh, that. Uh, those efforts were also stymied during the the last administration. Um, but as the Biden um, team has called for effectively net zero emissions by 2050 and reducing uh, power plant um, emissions uh, substantially by 2035, in order to do those, we're gonna need a lot more uh, renewable energy. And one of the best ways to produce that kind of power is through offshore wind. Uh, and the, there are these new tur- offshore wind turbines uh, that are massive and increase the efficiency and the amount of power that can be produced uh, substantially from earlier designs. Um, and um, the, the regulatory hurdles, though, have been significant, particularly in the Trump administration, um, and the and um, and that seems poised to change uh, so much so that my state Massachusetts now has a goal. We just passed um, uh, legislation that um, that calls for fifty six hundred megawatts of wow. offshore wind power um, within the next decade. And that will require massive amounts of turbines to be built in um, in waters south of um, uh, Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard, in and all uh, down the coast through uh, of Rhode Island and um, off of Connecticut waters, off of uh, New York waters, New York and. New Jersey also have very large um, uh, commitments that their government uh, that their governments have made 
uh, to building offshore wind. And I think yeah. it extends all the way down to uh, Virginia. And, um, and so we are going to see uh, substantial changes on the water and competition for uh, fishing grounds, not from other fishermen, but from, uh, from energy companies. And here in New England, there has been uh, the, the arguably the, the primary impediment to the first large deep water uh, uh, offshore wind projects getting built has been the fishing industry, which is, you know, got a vocal uh, and powerful lobbying uh, organization behind them. And, um, and that has made it difficult so far for the, the first uh, pylons to be driven into the uh, seabed. But uh, it seems like that is going to change. Um, and there have been, there, there are new groups that have formed in recent years that have tried to work out these the differences um, and try to make the construction of these, um, these massive turbines um, uh, not not interfering with the fishing industry and built in a way that the fishermen uh, can carry on. Um, and also um, there are uh, questions and issues about, about how these uh, massive turbines could affect uh, um, marine, marine life and marine mammals, uh, especially right whales. So that's a whole other subject. Uh, but in short, the, uh, the, the the building of these turbines is coming and it is going to uh it's going to change irrevocably how our waters are used and it's uh, going to have an impact on the fishing industry well for the for the listeners out there a couple of uh factoids that jump out at me on the issue of uh, wind power development in the northeast uh first thing is that the leasing of the seafloor uh, is handled uh, by the Bureau of Offshore Energy Management, BOEM, which is a federal agency. The lease sales that have been offered and purchased for wind power sites off of the New England shoreline uh, exceeded $400 million in, the, in one of the recent sales, uh, which I will, I will point out exceeds the lease value of oil and gas leases in the Gulf of Mexico in the last two lease sales under the Trump administration. It's big money, $400 million for the right to install turbines is what's being paid to the federal government now. Uh, You mentioned the larger uh, turbine sizes and the General Electric halide, uh, it's called the halide uh, uh, wind tower is incredible. This thing is the blade length, this is the interesting thing. It's being tested now in Rotterdam. They've got it put up and it's operating and they're just uh, you know, fine-tuning this machine. It is a 12 megawatt uh, generator. And the length of the blade is 100, and I believe it is 107 meters per blade. So, so 300 feet, in excess of 300 feet on a single blade. So the diameter That's of badass. this is, 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 is more than, they're massive. And well, the, other, the other factor that comes to mind when you that's 12. Yeah. Currently, the entire installed capacity in the United States is 40. It's about 40. Yeah. The vineyard wind is around 30. There's a few smidgen projects around. But uh, to get to 5600 uh, megawatts, as you said, David, over the next 20 or 30 years off of Massachusetts, it, it, what we're talking about here is an is a massive development of a new industry on the American shoreline in appropriate places, and it just happens to be uh, happening in the Northeast first. Uh, there is an economic boom here. Uh, there are new jobs, new industries. It's going to have a, a huge positive impact if you're interested in that particular segment of the economy. The trade-off here, as you mentioned, is with the fishing community. Uh, I'm kind of fascinated to see how much money the oil, uh, the wind power industry is going to pay the fishermen for the inconvenience of installing these, these turbines. Um, because as I understand it, the, the problem the fishermen are raising is that it changes access to fishing grounds. It increases the distance they have to sail to get where they want to go. 
it's going to drive up their fuel costs. It will delay certain things in what they can do. Uh, do you see a reconciliation here? Are you optimistic that the interests of the traditional fishing community in the Northeast can be balanced and sorted out with the emerging wind power industry off of New England? I, I do. I mean, I think there are going to be a lot of um, uh, a lot of hurdles along the way and fights, and there already have been. Um, uh, but uh, we're, we're seeing these changes already happen. Um, and uh, I don't think that um, that we have as a society much of a choice at this point. Right. Offshore wind is going is is a vital component to us reducing our emissions. Um, and if we don't reduce our emissions, we're going to have uh, greater um, our oceans are going to absorb more car carbon dioxide. Our our uh, seas are going to become more acidic. Uh, our shellfish are going to be, uh, become more brittle and prone to disease. And there's going to be substantial impacts on our fisheries, as we have already seen with cod, lobster, and other iconic species like winter shrimp um, and, yeah. uh, and, you know, and other, um, and, and our whales. So, uh, so this is all linked. And I think fishermen uh know that and so um we we need to find ways to move oh, move off of fossil fuels offshore wind presents a very attractive um non-invasive way of providing power in terms of not putting a turbine in someone's backyard um and um and uh this is coming yeah and it's just a question of smoothing out uh, how it gets done and and uh, and uh, getting through legal challenges and and that that sort of thing. Well, I, I'm looking forward to reading. Uh, I hope that you're going to be covering this at the Boston Globe and as your in your role as the environment reporter. Uh, we need smart folks taking a look at this and the balancing the interests that are going to occur. Uh, so I'm looking forward to following uh, your coverage of this issue in the future. Uh, no doubt about it uh, that climate change is a substantial issue. The, certainly the Biden administration is putting it at the top of the heap. Uh, power production is a substantial contributor to climate uh, uh, carbon emissions in the atmosphere, about 30% of the total, it's estimated. So uh, the, the reason I'm optimistic about it is that the offshore wind turbine industry in Europe and in the North Sea and off of England and what, what's happening in, in basically in the European world uh, proves that it can be done and done effectively. Uh, it's not uh, substantially developed along the American shoreline. So uh, we need to do it. It can be done. The investment opportunities here are substantial. Uh, Orsted, one of the major wind power development companies, has completely restructured their company this year to prepare for the American market. Uh, so I, I think you're, you're right to, to, to see this as, 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 as almost an inevitability. Uh, the question will be what these trade-offs are going to be. And in my opinion, you know, get out the checkbook power companies and write checks and and support these fishermen who need to maybe sail further uh or or incur other costs and and you know i hate to say it but isn't that uh, we gotta we gotta we gotta offset that and i think there's going to be enough money being made here to do it so i'm i'm, I'm hoping it'll all uh, sort of fall into place but never easy <laughs> david on the american shoreline to, to to reconcile these interests but hoping it'll occur up there in your region all right real quick right, yep before we uh, before we jump off here, David, we've yeah. we've almost done a full hour. I want to get your thoughts on the uh, Northeast Canyons and Seamounts uh, National Monument. National Monument. This is, uh, of course, out in the ocean. Uh, it's a marine monument. A marine monument. One of five marine monuments established by presidents of the United States, created by Obama in 2016. It's about 5,000 square miles of area. And the National Monument was created to limit fishing in these sensitive uh, 
seamount areas off of New England. Uh, but there's been a lot of controversy about it, uh, the Trump administration trying to open it back up to fishing. Uh, David, what's the sentiment out there um, about the Northeast Canyons and Seamounts National Monument? What's going on in the discussion up there? Well, I should say the first thing, uh, uh, and I wrote a story about it in the paper uh, uh, a week or so ago, um, as part of a um, uh, campaign uh, or an initial flurry of executive orders to uh, to um, overturn a lot of the Trump administration policies. Um, President Biden um, just recently signed an executive order that would um, restore the um, the what is the first Marine National Monument here in the Atlantic Ocean to the status uh, given to it by um, uh, by the Obama administration, which essentially uh, re- bans most commercial fishing in um, in this area that is about five thousand square miles of federally protected water southeast of Cape Cod. And uh, in short, Trump tried to um, uh, issued an executive order opening up the waters uh, to commercial fishing. And now um, uh, Biden has issued an executive order that essentially is calling for uh, um, uh, a, a quick study about whether that should be maintained or overturned. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be likely that they'll revert to the Obama policy. Uh, and in a month or so, uh, there should be a report that um, decides on whether to uh, close it, close the commercial fishing that's been allowed there to happen uh, again. Well, I, you know, it, it's the common theme between this discussion of the right whale the wind power development offshore of New England and the Northeast Canyons and Seamounts National Monument uh, is the fishing industry's key role in each of these areas. And I'm hoping, David, that the fishing industry becomes part of the solution. The world is changing. These traditional industries are going to have to adjust to the demands of climate change and the competition for resources in the nearshore waters around the country. Uh, Hopefully, uh, the more enlightened members of the fishing community recognize that these uh, changes, these new developments are important and that they can coexist with the development of wind power, the protection of the right whale, and the establishment of marine protected areas like the National Monuments off of uh, 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 the Marine National Monument system. Um, you know, I, in, in talking to that community, uh, I just wanted to get a sense of what what you're hearing. Is there an openness to the adjustments that are being called for here in the fishing industry in New England to these new developments? Or is there a hard resistance? What's your sense of the community if we can generalize something like that? Sorry, say that one more time. What's the... Um... What's the tone and tenor of the fishing community as it faces the wind power, the right whale protections, and the establishment of these marine protected areas? Is there a, is there a segment of the fishing industry that is interested in, in sort of being compatible with these adjustments that are coming their way? Um, I think it's changing. And I think, you know, some years ago, I think the first response was uh hell no right and there was uh there was quite a lot more pushback i think now particularly with offshore wind uh while there are uh there are legal challenges um it it seems to be that the fishing community and and we saw this arguably with the uh with the right whales um um, and even with the Marine Monument, uh, that they now take a more sophisticated uh, approach, uh, which um, which isn't just a blunt uh, across-the-board rejection, but they try to pick and choose their battles, uh, I think, more carefully and um, and sort of uh, uh, in uh, in 
broad tones uh, uh, echo the language that you hear from the conservation community or the science community saying that they, you know, respect the, you know, they understand these things need to change or they understand what's happening and so on. Um, uh, but, you know, we just have to make it work for the fishing industry. Yeah. So the, the question is, and, and in general, that seems fair. And, you know, we, we definitely, we want to maintain a robust uh, um, fishery. We, we want, we, there, there are generations of traditions and, and uh, it remains a huge part of our coastal economy. Um, um, but uh, finding a, a harmony as we move through these challenging issues uh, is is vital and um, it, it remains to be seen whether the fishing community is going to be a partner or a um, or or a legal foe very well said David I think that is the challenge ahead uh, Ladies and gentlemen, it is David Abel, who is the environment reporter for the Boston Globe Pulitzer Prize winner, decorated filmmaker. Uh, he's done a number of great films about coastal issues. Check him out. Uh, look for Entangled, his latest documentary film, available uh, on streaming services everywhere. Uh, David, thank you so much for updating our listeners uh, on the major issues uh, in the uh, northeast part of the United States on the coast. We really appreciate your time and insight every time you're on, and you're, we hope you'll come back and keep us up to date. My pleasure, and I uh, really appreciate it, and I always enjoy talking to you guys. Singing Mama 